the book of Ezra. For those of you that are newer this morning, we're going to be sort of doing a little bit of a catch-up to help you understand what's happening in the book. But the first thing that I want to do is I want to throw out to you a simple question, which is this. At times, why does it get harder and not easier when I take a step of faith for Christ? Last week, we were talking about taking a significant step for Jesus, and what I was telling everybody is think through when you do, because oftentimes, immediately after taking a step for Christ, the enemy is right behind trying to cause challenge, difficulty, or disruption. And interestingly enough, what I want to throw out to you this morning is how many of you have noticed that? How many of you in your walk with Jesus have taken a step of faith in Christ where perhaps maybe you needed to look and say, you know what, I'm not going to do that. It could be as simple for some of you in high school. Maybe there are people out there and they're saying, hey, let's go do this. You know what, it's not going to hurt you. Let's go grab a vape and nobody will know the difference. And you look and you tell your friends, you know, I don't know that I'm going to do that. And the next thing you know, in saying no, you're not exactly the most popular person. Maybe for some of you it's in business. Maybe someone comes forward and says, you know what, we're going to cut some corners here. We're not going to tell people about it, and that way we're going to increase our profit share. But the quality of our product or the quality of whatever it is that we're doing is going to be less. But just don't say anything. And perhaps you say, you know what, I just don't feel comfortable with that. I feel like we need to walk with integrity, et cetera, et cetera. And guess what? Maybe you've gone from being sort of the favorite person for the next managerial position, and perhaps when that position comes up, you got passed over. Maybe it's something even more significant. Maybe it's with family and friends, and perhaps your family is one that doesn't know our Lord and Savior Jesus. And for whatever reason, you've gone to them and said, hey, I've come to know Jesus Christ, and I'm going to want to walk with him. And now, maybe, you're not exactly the favorite niece, nephew, aunt, uncle, or family member. Friends, what I want to tell you is simply this. We need to remember and recognize, as we're going to see in the book of Ezra, that when we take a significant step for Jesus, that most likely opposition is going to come. Now, in that, that's great, wonderful, right? We're going to have a wonderful message this morning. What a buzzkill. Hey, come to Jesus and face opposition, right? Everybody's like, that's not a whole lot of fun. But the reality is we need to be prepared for this. Now, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer like I talked about last week, but I'm also trying to encourage the church to recognize that this is a reality of following Jesus Christ. When we come to Jesus, there are wonderful blessings that occur. I'm not deterring anyone from having a strong faith in Jesus Christ. But I also want people to recognize and understand that often when we walk with Jesus, when we turn away from the world and more toward our Savior Christ, the world is going to what? Not like that. Now, the other thing that I want to tell you is this. Before we get upset with the world, what I want to tell you is remember that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but the principalities of darkness. The real enemy behind all of this opposition is not the people who oppose us, but the prince of the kingdom of darkness, or Satan. 
And so as we walk through this passage, as we look at the opposition that the people of God are going to endure, we need to remember essentially why that's going on. Because the enemy wants nothing more than to try to destroy, diffuse, discourage, disrupt the advancement of the kingdom of God. But also, as we're going to see in a minute, and this is what I want to encourage you in, is that the kingdom of God will continue to advance until Christ returns. And that's where we find our hope. That's where we find our blessing. Can I just see out of a show of hands, how many of you in your walk with Jesus were confronted with a decision where it was either I can go along with the world, I can kind of blend in and not say anything or do anything or not disrupt the apple cart, or I can in love, not in legalism, not in pride, but in love, stand for Jesus and not go with the world. Anybody? Okay, so I see some hands. Can I now see the hands of, how'd that go for you? Right? I see a lot of people saying, not so great. Okay? But here's what I want to encourage you in. God is with you. God is there, and God is moving. And that's what we're going to see in a minute in the book of Ezra. Now, I'm going to quickly, as best as I can, for those of you that are newer today or visiting, get us caught up to speed. Maybe some of you have not been here for the last uh, sermon or whatnot, so that you can understand the context that we are in in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. The book of Ezra is a book in the Old Testament, and it essentially follows 2 Chronicles. Now, the interesting part of the reason why it follows 2 Chronicles is 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles are all talking about out essentially how God's people move through history and get an earthly king, build a temple, move forward in establishing worship, become a people of God, but then choose to essentially move toward idol worship. God comes along and says, I don't like this, and there's disruption. So to move to where we are in chapter 4, Ezra, essentially, as you finish 2 Chronicles and you literally turn the page to Ezra, it is just picking up where we left off. It's like the sequel to a movie. Some of you uh, like movies, etc., etc. That movie ends and then you start and the movie picks up right where that one left off. That's exactly what's happening in the book of Ezra. Now, where we pick up is with some history. The people of God had walked with God, and they had been able to build the temple where they were able to worship God. Things were going well. But over time, the people of God began to worship idols. God, through the prophet Isaiah, comes forward and says, hey, I'm here to warn you that if this continues, you people of God are going to go through disruption. You're going to be exiled. You're going to be taken away from your homes. You're going to be placed in a foreign land. However, I'm also going to tell you that at a point in time, I'm going to bring about a king who will disrupt the disruption and bring you back to your land. Interestingly enough, we discover that years before any of that is on the scene, Isaiah says it, the people of God look at Isaiah and they say, you know what, you're right. We better repent and turn to you, right? Oh, they look at that Isaiah and they say, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. So sure enough, 
As the people of God are doing their thing, along comes a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians. The Babylonian army captures and takes the people of God in the land of Israel. And they essentially remove them and take them out of their land and destroy the temple of God. And these people are in exile essentially for 70 years. Just as God said through the prophet Isaiah. But interesting enough, Isaiah also says, I'm going to bring about another king by the name of King Cyrus. And here's what's interesting. When Isaiah says this, Cyrus hasn't even been born, and he won't even been, be born for about 150 years. Okay, so that's important to recognize. Cyrus doesn't even exist. The Medo-Persian army doesn't even exist. But he says, I'm going to bring about King Cyrus, and he will be the one that will conquer this group, the Babylonians, and he will come to know me and issue a decree to send you back to your land. Everybody looks at him and says, this is crazy. But sure enough, after the people of God have been sent into exile, Cyrus comes, the Medo-Persian army conquers the Babylonians, and the people of God are sent back to their land to rebuild the temple. Right? That's what we read essentially in Ezra 1, Ezra 2, and Ezra 3. We all get excited we all look and we're looking and saying, wow, this is wonderful. God has essentially answered everything. He's brought the people of God back. The temple is starting to be rebuilt and the story should end. And then, like I said before, we turn to chapter four. And as soon as the temple starts to being built, the people of God encounter opposition. Now, last week, we talked about the fact that a group of individuals come forward while the people of God are rebuilding the temple. And they say, hey, let us help you with that. We've got people, we've got resources, we've got talent. You know what? It's going to take you so long to build this temple. You let us come in. We can cut this time in half. We might even be able to do this in a fourth of the time that it's going to require to rebuild this temple. And you would think that the people of God would look around and they would say, hey, that sounds like an amazing deal. We can get this temple up. We can worship God more. It's going to take less time. It's going to take less money. Sounds like a wonderful thing. But what we read in those first five verses is Zerubbabel, as well as the other leaders, turn to the individuals who are making this offer, and they say this. Get away from us. We have nothing to do with you. We will build the temple because God has told us and King Cyrus is the one who has told us to rebuild this temple. See ya. And interestingly enough, you look at that and you think, well gosh, that's quite a harsh response to say to these people who are offering the opportunity to rebuild the temple. But what we do is, is we look back in history and we discover in 2 Kings 17 that the people that are offering are known as the Samaritans. The Samaritans, as we discover in 2 Kings 17, 21 through I think 46, are individuals who came along and took a little bit of God, but a whole lot of idol worship, 
a little bit of Yahweh and a whole lot of their own way of thinking. And in so doing, what happened was they began to bleed in to what I would say the purity of the church. And what happened was the church didn't become the church. It became the world. And so in that, that's why God came forward and brought about Nebuchadnezzar and all of these things. So Zerubbabel is smart enough to go back and say, you know what, thank you, but no. We're not going to have you rebuild because if we do, we are going to fall back to where we were before. We're going to fall back into idol worship. We're going to become essentially where we were and we're going to be right back to what occurred before. And so interestingly enough, you would think, well, wow, that's awesome. That's a huge step of faith. And you would think, well, God would honor it. And everything was fine, and the world went well, and we all went off and retired with a wonderful life, and we sang kumbaya for the rest of our lives. But the people who offered become angered. And the people who become angered begin to oppose. And the people who begin to oppose begin to disrupt. And what we discover in the final verse of that part is they disrupt the building of the temple for approximately, I'll say 18 to 22 years. Some experts say that it was about 15 years. The simplest way to put it is that the temple foundation is built and now that these people are opposing the people of God, the building of the temple and the advancement of the movement of God's people is disrupted for at least 15, but most likely 18 or 22 years. And that's where we pick up this morning. And so the first question that I want to ask to all of you is this. How many of you would be prepared to take a step of faith for God, to stand upon God's word, and then know that you were going to be facing 15 to 22 years of opposition? Anybody? Can I see your hands? Because here I'm going to tell you, if you don't want to do that, we don't want to read on. If, if, if you don't want that to happen, friends, then we don't want to read this next part of Ezra. But we do. And so we're going to pick up in Ezra 4, 6 through 24. Now, to do this, I know I'm laying some foundation. A lot of you are chronological thinkers, aren't you? Right? You like chronology. How many of you are those people that like a movie that sets up with a time frame? And here's the time. And then all of a sudden, it either reverses in time or it fast-forwards in time. And then it goes back. Anybody? I see some hands raising. Okay. That's what's happening here. What's going to happen is we read that essentially the people of God are setting up the temple. And now, by saying no to the Samaritans, they're facing opposition. And that opposition is going to last until the time of King Darius. And then all of a sudden in verse 6, and this is what you got to see, we fast forward, okay? We just shift, boom, into the reign of Xerxes and Artaxerxes. We fast forward several years. The reason for this is oftentimes in this sort of culture of writing, the authors aren't necessarily concerned about perfect chronology, they're more concerned about the emphasis of what they're writing. 
which is the people of God experiencing opposition. And so what happens is Ezra, or the chronicler, moves to discuss this letter, and then what we're going to see is right at the end of this chapter, in verse 24, boom, we go right back to the time of Darius. So it shifts to a focus of continued opposition, and then it goes back to Darius. So, for those of you that like to kind of know what's going on, I just don't want you being confused, going, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about Darius, now why are we talking about Xerxes and Artaxerxes, and now why are we talking about Darius again? It's one of these shifts in time to emphasize the opposition that the people of God are experiencing. And so, we start. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Merithadath, Tabil, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Rahim, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges and officials over the men of Tripolis, Persia, Erech, and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honorable Asherabal, uh, Penal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. This is a copy of the letter they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of the trans-Euphrates, the king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. I'm putting that for emphasis. You're going to see this in a minute. Okay? They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and the royal revenues will suffer. Dum, dum, dum. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace, and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored. Okay? We are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, hint, hint, hint. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and to provinces, a place of rebellion from ancient times. That is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. Dum-dum-dum, okay? The reason that I'm doing this in a moment, as you're going to see, is that these people are twisting and bending the truth through emotional appeal, and they're giving partial truth with a whole lot of lies while building up the pride of the king. And that's going to become important as we look through what goes on here. The king sent this reply. 
to Rahim, the commanding officer, Shimshai the secretary, and the rest of uh, their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in the trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent to us has been read and translated in my presence. Good. That's good. I issued an order and a search was made and it was found that this city had a long history of revolt against the kings and has been a uh, place of rebellion and sedition. Mark that. Because they did do a search, but they searched only for what they wanted to look for. They didn't do a thorough search. And that's going to become important as we look into what Satan is doing behind the scenes. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why uh, let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? Okay, I'm going to pause here. I know this can be sort of challenging, but I want to give you an idea. We fast forwarded to the reign of Xerxes and Artaxerxes, and now they're talking about the rebuilding of the city. Okay? This is moving, for those of you that like to kind of tie things together, to essentially more of the time of Nehemiah, the prophet Nehemiah, and the rebuilding of the city. So we've moved from the prophecy of Isaiah, the culmination that we see in Jeremiah, the building of the temple, now to the building of the city. This is where we are, somewhat contemporary or closer to the time of Nehemiah. And then, here in a minute, we're going to flip back and we're going to go back to the time of Darius. And you'll see that when we walk through this text. Uh, let's see, I'm sorry. Do, 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 do. Um, I think I was at, yeah, verse 22. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of royal interests? 23. As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Okay? Now, here's this transition. Verse 24. Okay? Thus... The work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay? We're back now to the time of Darius. For those of you that look, you're like, wait a minute. We're going to look at the timeline. We're talking about Xerxes and Arctaxerxes. Now why are we talking about Darius? It's a shot forward to demonstrate the continued opposition that they're experiencing. And then the author moves back and now we're going to land back in the time of Darius. That's essentially what's happening in this chapter. So here's what I want to show you. First and foremost, a lot of you have said that you've taken a step of faith for Christ. And a lot of you said that afterwards you experienced opposition. My next question is simply this. How long did that opposition go? And how much more as you continued to take that step of faith for Christ did the opposition become intensified? Friends, what I want to show you, first and foremost, in verse 6 is this. That Satan pursues any means necessary to disrupt, discourage, diffuse, and defile the work of God. 
Just remember that. Remember that Satan is right behind the church doing whatever he can to cause confusion, disruption, defilement, etc., etc. I find it very interesting that God does all of these things. The people of God return to Jerusalem. They return to their land. They begin what? Properly, as we discover, by rebuilding the altar first. The reason that they do that, as we read in the third chapter, is, hey, it's all about God. It's now all about honoring him. We want to get back to the law of Moses, to the book. We want to honor what we've been told. We want to worship God. Awesome. That's an amazing thing. And the people of God are excited but right alongside, right behind, is the enemy saying, I can't let this happen. What can I do? So I'm going to look for ways to discourage the people of God from continuing to move forward and build for God's kingdom. So I'm going to start and look for other people to try to bring them in and confuse them. And interestingly enough, that's what we see in the start of chapter 4. But Zerubbabel and the leaders are smart enough to say, nope, God's the one who told us that we alone are to rebuild. And P.S., by the way, King Cyrus has told us that we're to rebuild. So you have God, but also you've got the worldly comfort of King Cyrus. Very smart politically, but what happens next? The people of God are trusting in God, but in the back of their minds, they're going, you know, if this doesn't work out, we can always fall back on Cyrus. We can always fall back on the king because it's his decree. And right now, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. We just have the Samaritans who are upset with us. <laughs> Massive powder keg. In a few short years, it's not just the Samaritans. It's everybody and their grandmother and their grandmother's dog that are mad at them. Watch what happens. We get into verse uh, 6, right? And then we move to verse 7. And don't miss this. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodge an accusation against the people of Judah in Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Midrath, Tabiel, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in Aramaic language. Rahim, the commanding officer, and Shimsai, the secretary, wrote the letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes and the king as follows. Okay? So we're going to write this letter, and this is where we go that not only will Satan pursue any means necessary to disrupt, discourage, diffuse, and defile the work of God, but when people continue to take a step of faith for him, his next move is this. Satan works to unite unbelievers to bring false testimony and accusations against God's people. Watch how this expands. We get into verse 9. Rahum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges and officials, over the men from, not just the Samaritans, from Tripoli, Persia, Enric, and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, the other people whom the great and honorable um, Ashurna Prinabal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in the trans-Euphrates. Everybody. 
So it's not just the Samaritans, it's now all of these people. We're massing a group against the people of God. And so think through this for a minute. I find it very interesting that often when you might take a step of faith for Jesus, and it might be with one or two people, oftentimes after taking that step and continuing in that step, that one or two becomes 10 or 20, 30 or 40, 40 or 50. And the next thing you know, you feel like the whole world is against you. But also, watch this. The people of God are sitting there and they're saying, yeah, you know, before it was hard. But at least we had Cyrus behind us. Not anymore. Cyrus is long and gone. And not only is Cyrus long and gone, but the new king... The new king isn't indifferent. The new king hears the manipulation of the people and the new king is now out against you as well. So you don't have the king to back you either. All you have is God. And friends, lovingly I ask, is that enough? Satan works to unite unbelievers to bring false testimony and accusation against God's people. He brings about a group. He continues the accusations. He intensifies the opposition. And what I want to ask is simply this. Friends, lovingly, I tell you, and praise God for it, it is one thing to take a step of faith for Jesus. And I want to encourage you, when you do, praise God. That's awesome. But I also want to lovingly encourage, but also warn you, be ready to count the cost. Because taking that step might be something that intensifies opposition, that makes you less popular, that causes challenge in your life, that divides individuals. But remember that God is always there. We continue. And then we see in verses 11 that Satan's going to kind of do this thing. He's like, all right, you know, I'm going to try to disrupt. I'm going to discourage what's going on. I've got these people coming in, the Samaritans. It looks good. Gosh, you know, Zerubbabel was smart. He said no. So now I'm not going to stop. I'm going to turn up the heat. I'm going to bring about more opposition. But not only this, not only am I going to do that, but I'm going to bring out out opposition through manipulation. I'm going to have these people, these unbelievers, work on a letter that's going to flatter the new king, but they're going to point to certain things that they want the king to see. So they're going to bring about a truth, but it really isn't the truth they're going to hide and accuse with falsities. Anybody ever have that happen to them? Anybody ever have somebody just bring up something that's so absurd, so wrong, you know it's not true, and you look and you think, where's this coming from? Why are they saying this? Friends, lovingly, what I'm telling you is that's the enemy just doing what he can to try to bring about manipulation to the truth behind it, And what I want to encourage you, as we're going to see in this book, is just to continue to walk in faith. To walk in faith with your Savior and let your testimony, your character, and your walk speak for God. 
Satan uses tools of flattery and manipulation in an attempt to discredit God's people. In verse 11, and you'll notice I kind of emphasize some things, we start off and we say, this is a copy of the letter that they sent to him, to King Artaxerxes. From your servants, okay? Kind of a little bit of, hey, you know, set up the pride, we're here to serve you, we're behind you. Friends, what I want to tell you is this. These people really, behind the scenes, wanted nothing to do with a foreign king lording over them. They wanted to be their own people. But in order to get what they wanted, which was against what the people of God were doing, they came under the guise of being the servants of Artaxerxes and previously Xerxes. The king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone into Jerusalem and are rebuilding that. I love adverbs. Rebellious and wicked city. Really? How? How do we know this? They're throwing in this hint to try to steer the mind of Artaxerxes that these people are against you. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. That's true. Do you see how there's a truth with a lie posed as truth? And oftentimes, unbelievers will utilize that tool against the church. But friends, what I want to also tell you is before you get upset with unbelievers, remember where the real battle lies. It's not them. It's the enemy using them to disrupt the work of God. Fight against him, not against unbelievers. We continue on, and it says this. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and the royal revenues will suffer. Catastrophic. You got to know this, king. You have to understand that if this happens, you are going to have a huge problem. We're going to blow something that's probably not even true to this massive event that is ill-founded, but yet it tickles the ear of the king. Now, since we are under obligation, right, to the palace, and it is not proper us to see the king dishonored. I mean, they are just laying it on thick, right? We are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. Look, look right here, okay? What they're doing is, is they're just laying it out. They're being like, okay, set this up, put it right here, don't tell anybody. Go look right, right there. You'll find it. But don't look over here. Don't do an exhaustive investigation. Don't go and talk to the people of God and actually see what's going on. Just, just go right here and take what you need. We've got it all set up. It's going to go perfect. 
in these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city. Interesting, right? You're going to see this. We're going to set this up. It's going to be perfect. Troublesome to kings and to provinces. A place of rebellion from ancient times. That is why this city was destroyed. Interesting. It's true that city was destroyed, but I'll tell you this. It wasn't destroyed because they were rebellious against what? The king. They were rebellious against the king. Don't miss this. The reason it was destroyed was they were rebelling against God, not against the kings of the world. And so we look and we realize that he's going to do what he can to try to discredit the people of God. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in the trans-Euphrates. In case you didn't get this, don't miss it. It's going to be awful. We're going to just throw this in just to try to kind of get you to worry. So one of the things that I want to share with you is this. Oftentimes, Satan's going to use unbelievers to discredit the church. And he's going to use flattery and manipulation to unbelievers to try to aid in who the people of God are and quote-unquote how bad they are to the world and its progress. That's just a fact. But I want to encourage you with this. Uh, Michael Henry's commentary says essentially this with respect to kind of this portion of the passage. It says, It is an old slander that the prosperity of the church would be hurtful to kings and princes. Friends, we're called to what? Uplift those who are in authority over us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're called to just do whatever it is that they say. We're also called to uphold the gospel. But the history of the church and the example of the church is to be one of support and encouragement to those that are in authority. He continues on and he says, Nothing can be more false, for true godliness teaches us to honor and obey our sovereign. The world is never ready to believe any accusation against the people of God and refuses to listen to them. So what's going to happen is the enemy is going to look and he's going to say, I need to find unbelievers who I can use to bring about false accusations against the church to begin to discredit the movement of what's going on. And that's going to continue throughout the history of the church until Christ returns. And so we continue on, and we look, and we turn to the response. And this is what I want to show you. Again, remember, previously, when Zerubbabel said, no, we will build the temple on our own, he also said, P.S., by the way, if you have a problem with this, take it up with Cyrus, who's king, because he's issued the decree. Well, guess who's king now? Not Cyrus, but Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes says the following writes the letter, I won't go through all of the words, but essentially he hears what these people say and he agrees with them. He says, you know what? You're right. These people are wicked and rebellious. The work is to stop immediately. And so now the people of God not only have increased opposition, increased aggravation, increased intensified troubles with the people around them, 
they no longer have a king who's backing them. So what do we think about this? Friends, I'm going to just simply tell you this. We must be careful where we put our trust. Because it can change at any moment. Lovingly, I'm going to ask you, where is your trust? Is it in God or is it in government? Because as we see time and time again, government will change, but God will not. Where is your trust? We look. The letter is written, and interestingly enough, you would think that perhaps as this new king says, hey, I'm with you against the people of God, that perhaps God would step in and bring about a little bit of a reprieve, right? But let's get to verse 23. As soon as the copy of the letter of King Arxaxerxes was read to Rahum and Ashimshai, the secretary and their associates, they, and don't miss this, they immediately went to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Okay, read this with the words that are there. They're waiting for this. Okay? They are ready. They can't wait for this letter to come. They are prepared. And as soon as it does, they take it, and it's like Pony Express. It's a handoff. Great. And we are now immediately going to go to the people of God. And what? A very polite way, compel them by force. Persecute them. And if you don't like it, guess what? You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to do this. You're going to do whatever it is that we're going to do because we now have the decree of the king. All because years ago, one man, one group of leaders took a step of faith for Jesus Christ. Friends, what I want to tell you is this. In verse 24, uh, what we're going to see is it returns back, okay, to Darius. And what I want to tell you is as we look to the step of faith that was taken by Zerubbabel with Darius to what occurs with Artaxerxes and the intensification of the persecution that the people of God are enduring, this is what I want to share with you. While one step of faith for Christ can bring about strong opposition for an extended period. Okay, that's the next point that I want to make. But don't miss the three dots at the end. We're going to pause here for a minute. This is awful. I don't know about you, but right now, if I were Zerubbabel or if I were the people of God, I would be sitting there going, God, where are you? I mean, we were sent into exile. You told us that you would bring us back. You brought us back. We started rebuilding the temple. Things looked really good. Zerubbabel was sitting there and he said, you know what, we're going to remain faithful to you. We're trying to remain faithful to you. We had this group of the Samaritans that said no. They were just a group of people. And now, now God, not only has it been that we can't rebuild the temple for 15 to 22 years, but we're going on multiple years and the whole world's against us. And now we don't even have a king who backs us. Where are you, God? I want to just lay this out. Okay, 
I'm going to do the best that I can. This is going to help you understand what's happening in this timeline. The first period of opposition, okay, what we see in the beginning when they go to, to Zerubbabel and say, hey, we want to help you rebuild, was in the rebuilding of the temple, which lasted about 18 to 22 years. We see that they're opposed, and that opposition leads or continues to Darius I, okay? The exile in the sunken temple was started in and around 538 okay, to 535, 534 BC, meaning that the people who came and construction probably started somewhere in that time frame. And it was completed in 516 BC and dedicated in 515. So if you kind of do the math, what they're saying is opposition occurred, the reign of Darius was during this time, and there it was completed, meaning that these people just for rebuilding the temple had opposition for 18 to 22 years. Okay? So let's follow this with history. Okay? The period in the reign for the kings of the Persian Empire, and this is approximately, this helps understand. Number one was Cyrus II, or Cyrus the Great. Okay? He's the one whom God uses to issue the decree to bring the people of God back, and the king is behind the people of God. Cyrus does his thing. He moves on. Cambyses II comes in and reigns. This is continuing opposition now with the temple. And Darius I comes in and reigns. Okay? That's that opposition. And yay, we see in big and bold, the temple is built. Yippee, woohoo, awesome. I'm not saying it's bad. But oftentimes what we think is, great, now the temple's built. Now we can move forward. Satan's going to be done. He's not going to keep doing his thing. Well, hold on. Xerxes come in. He reigns from 486 to 465 BC. And Artaxerxes reigns from 465 to 424 BC. The reason that I'm laying this up is for the next point that I want to make to all of us. Yay. We built the temple over opposition. And the opposition is done, right? No. No. Again, I hate to be a Debbie Downer. But friends, opposition will continue until Jesus returns. Period. The opposition continues and intensifies. And now there is no king to back them. In fact, the new kings are against them and make matters worse because many nations are against them. I mean, everything that could go wrong does. Anywhere that the people of God could go for worldly comfort is gone. And all they have to back them is God. And so I want to just throw this out to all of us, a heart check. Friends, are we willing to endure 18 to 22 years of opposition for taking a step of faith for Christ? Will we continue to follow him when the opposition lasts over 70 plus years? We lose the backing of the king and nations are against us. Long, dramatic pause for emphasis.
honestly, in my heart, some days I look at that and I'm like, man, I just, um, just want to walk away. Anybody feel that way sometimes? But, like I said last week, dot, dot, dot from that point before, okay? While one step of faith for Christ can bring about strong opposition for an extended period, the final point, which is the same as last week, but I want to put this in for emphasis so that we understand the promises of God. Remember God's plan and promises will not be thwarted. What he said he will do. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, God said, I will build my church. I will build my people. I will bring about my glory. I will restore my people back to me and they will be mine. I will bring about a savior who will take away the sins of the world and those who know him and love him will be part of his kingdom forever with no more hurt, no more pain and they will live with him throughout an eternity worshiping his holy name and the enemy will be no longer. God has said that. God has promised that. God has done, is doing, and will do that. And that's what I want to encourage you in. When we take steps of faith for Jesus, we are going to encounter opposition. Maybe another way to put it, and... If you haven't encountered opposition, maybe you're not taking a step of faith for Jesus Christ. I'm just saying that very humbly, okay? I'm not being like, wow, look at me, blah, 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 blah. But what I want to tell you is that there are going to be moments in your life, in the church's life, when we are called to stand humbly, graciously for God's word. And I promise you that when we do, it's going to get harder before it gets easier. But I'm also going to tell you that God has promised that he is with his church, with his people, and his kingdom will continue to advance until Jesus returns. And P.S., by the way, when Jesus returns... It all comes to an end. Satan does not win. Friends, at times, why does it get harder and not easier when I take a step of, step of faith for Christ? I don't know about you, and I'm praying here. I'm like, man, I'm hoping that I'm not preaching this so much that everybody leaves here and is like, I ain't taking a step of faith for Jesus, Right? But I want to tell you is this, that when you do, God is there and God will see you through. But I also want to promise you that the enemy is there as well, trying to discourage what God is doing through you and through the work of the church. But also know 
that God will never leave you nor forsake you. And what he has promised, he will accomplish. What he has said, he will do. Sometimes we must count the cost. And again, we get to the most glorious part of the scriptures, which is our Savior Jesus going to the cross. Jesus dies on the cross. And the whole world and the enemy thinks, I have won. You want to kill a kingdom? Kill its king. I've just killed its king. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Tough movie to watch. But I think one of the best spiritual references is that moment when you see Jesus on the cross and you see essentially Satan. And as Jesus gives up his spirit, you sort of see Satan just kind of going, I've won. But what Satan doesn't know is what? Three days later. And friends, that is what we celebrate at Easter, the blessed hope of the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ, who triumphs over sin and death and brings about eternal life for those who believe in him, whom the enemy can not destroy. That's what I want you to remember today. That's what I want to leave you with. That's the encouragement that I want you to walk out of here with. And so simply this, when we take a step of faith for Christ, this is the take-home truth, it can get harder and not easier. I, I wish I could, I could lie. No, I don't. But it would be a heck of a lot more fun to be like, yeah, come to Jesus, it's all great. You get what you want, how you want, and when you want, and life's going to be perfect. And a lot of times, God does some amazing things. But I also want to be very real with you and tell you that when we are forced to make a decision, are we going to follow God or are we going to follow the world, and we follow God, the enemy is going to do everything he can to try to discourage that decision. When we take a step of faith for Christ, it can get harder and not easier, yet we are to continue to trust that what God said, he will do. And may that be what brings us hope, encouragement, peace, and a desire to go out and to continue to teach and preach the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The good news that the world so desperately needs to hear. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Ezra. Father, we thank you for the realness that is there. We thank you for the rawness that is there. Father, we thank you that this book can move and show not only how prophecy comes to fruition, but also historically how true it is. And Father, may, may that be a, a great encouragement to us as we look forward and we recognize that as the world twists and turns, ebbs and flows, as we see some of the challenges that are out there, as the world may appear to become darker, what we recognize is, is we're not to lose hope. Because we recognize that when the church stands for you, it will experience opposition. But Lord, we also know that you are there and you will see us through. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean that there aren't challenges or consequences at times. But Father, we also know that you will not leave your people. And so may that bring hope and joy and comfort and peace and rest to our hearts as we seek to bring about the gospel to the community that's around us. 
May that encourage us to go out with humility but boldness to tell people about the blessedness of our Savior Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you. We thank you too as we're going to continue traveling through the book of Ezra that we recognize that really what this opposition does is it draws the hearts of the people of God to a deeper awe and reverence of you to bring more glory and more honor to your name. And what better thing, because you are our king. We thank you, we praise you, we ask these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, amen. amen.